Welcome to Dangerous Wisdom, a journey into mystery and a gateway to the mind of nature and the nature of mind. This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, happy to be here with you so that together we can create a culture of wisdom, love, and beauty. Auspicious interbeing to you and yours, my friends, Coenos Hermes, and much praise to Sophia. We're going to talk about embodiment. Embodiment's big, it's got a lot of attention. Somatic this, somatic that, embodied this, embodied that, it pops up throughout the self-help industrial complex. In a way, we might find that surprising, given the materialist and materialistic nature of the dominant culture. If we're so materialistic and so steeped in metaphysical materialism, how could we get so cut off from our own bodies? We could describe U.S. culture as rather intellectually opposed, you know, like anti-intellectual. And so in such an anti-intellectual climate, how did we get so apparently disembodied? In reflecting on practices of embodiment, it's essential to genuinely honor the sincere work people are trying to do to recover our sanity and our basic goodness, including a more vitalizing relationship with our embodiment and intimacy with the sacredness of the body and the world. And part of honoring our work on this, part of honoring our own suffering and the suffering of all beings, honoring our own dignity and the dignity of all beings, part of that includes practicing honesty and clear seeing so that we avoid self-deception and unintended negative side effects. It seems that if we look with care, we find significant potential for self-deception in relation to somatic ideas and practices, such that embodiment can get co-opted into the pattern of insanity. We can do yoga, take walks in nature and practice forest bathing, We can explore our sexuality. We can engage in all manner of somatic and trauma-informed practices all while the ecologies we depend on continue to deteriorate. Now, this expresses a central issue of the dominant culture. We have cultivated a style of consciousness and a style of life in which human beings can think of themselves as getting better while nature gets worse, often by means of the very same processes the humans think of as making things better. That's in some ways the essence of the self-help catastrophe. In the context of such a culture and its pervasive, effectively global influence, What we call embodiment runs the risk of becoming countless forms of spiritual materialism self-medication. It runs the risk of appearing as yet another round in the seesaw game of dualities, body versus mind, reason versus emotion, 
head versus heart, self versus world, pattern maintenance versus pattern transcendence. Because so many practices of embodiment ultimately derive from the wisdom traditions and because of the basic goodness and self-healing capacities of our bodies, minds, hearts, and world, we find them medicating. We feel better. But we miss the fuller healing potential. Spiritual materialism functions by keeping us convinced of our good intentions. We experience our embodiment work as meaningful, but we miss the fuller potentials of meaning, insight, transformation, healing, the healing of self and world together. As a consulting philosopher, part of my work involves serving as what we might call a holistic embodiment professional. That's a funny thing. You might not think of that as what a philosopher's job is, but that's really what it is in a certain way, especially with my particular training. I could put that on a little business card, I suppose. Holistic embodiment professional. And so from that perspective, I really support the spirit of a lot of these efforts. At the same time, my training as a philosopher also helps me recognize the need to keep embodiment from getting co-opted into the self-help catastrophe, getting co-opted into the pattern of insanity in general. To help us resist that co-opting and to more fully empower ourselves, we can conscientiously avoid at least five major errors in relationship to embodiment. Now, here are the five. Not a complete list. First, forgetting that we already identify with the body. Second, forgetting that the body is an abstraction. Third, subtly maintaining the duality of mind and body. Fourth, mistaking mind-body unity as the goal. Fifth, failing to address the need for holism and vision. It might sound triggering for some people to even consider the notion of errors, of embodiment. We've gotten to a point at which we sometimes find it challenging to acknowledge mistakes. And that's all this amounts to, that we might have made a few mistakes. We all make mistakes, and we all suffer from ignorance. We don't have to obsess over that or beat ourselves up. We can just do our best to correct our errors, do our best to correct our ignorance for the benefit of all. If we aren't fully enlightened sages, if we can admit that, then it empowers us greatly to acknowledge mistakes. That's where so much learning happens, the place where we find the mistakes, where the challenges are. Given the context of the dominant culture, we should find it quite shocking if we didn't make any mistakes as we tried to get more in touch with reality and gain intimacy with our own embodied existence, gain intimacy with this inconceivable interwovenness that we are. 
A little reflection on each of these errors can prove illuminating. None of these errors are always present. Well, maybe they are in a subtle way, but not necessarily overtly. They're not usually present, all of them, all five, in full force all the time. Sometimes they appear in very subtle, unintentional forms. We won't get what we seek from so-called embodiment without some extra care, compassion, and creativity in relation to these five errors. Now, we'll break this up because this would be, I think, a long contemplation. When I first thought of thinking through these, I thought, okay, we can just think through these five errors and no problem. And then I thought, well, we better think through the five errors and then think through how how we transcend them. And then I thought, well, that might take two contemplations, but really I think we should break it up. So what we'll probably do, I think two of these we could combine. Errors three and four we might functionally combine, and that'll be all right. Uh, but each of the others will consider the errors, I think, by, by themselves, even if it's a relatively short contemplation, and then we'll think about how to transcend them. I want to acknowledge again, embodiment has become a charged topic because we are really confused about what to do with these bodies. <laughs> it's a funny thing. We don't know what to make of it. It can feel sensitive, it can feel threatening to some of us to think through it with the care we seem to need in this particular context. And it's extra charged, I think, because we know so many bodies depend on our embodiment, that our embodiment affects so many other bodies, so many other sentient beings, human and non-human. So remember to let yourself feel grounded. And pause. If something feels too overwhelming to stay with it, starts to trigger you in some way, it's all right. It's just the energy of the soul saying, okay, there's something here. Now these short reflections cannot cover everything important about embodiment. We're going to leave a lot of things out. Hopefully that won't create more problems. If you have questions, ask them. But this isn't exhaustive. Nevertheless, Thinking through these errors with care can help foster transformative insight and healing in our lives. And so this isn't a contemplation in particular for embodiment professionals or somatic this or somatic that, but all of us, we've got this embodiment to deal with. That's really what we want to focus on. But if you happen to be into embodiment in some way, it might be extra special helpful for you because maybe you are teaching people about embodiment and We need discernment. We all can help ourselves. So let's turn to that first error, forgetting that we already identify with the body. Identification has a mercurial nature. Sometimes we identify more with the mind, sometimes more with the body. In traffic, we may identify with our car. In a debate, we may identify with our ideas. In a sports stadium, we may identify with our team. In some wisdom traditions, we may have to shave our heads to become full-time practitioners, in part because of how we identify even with our hair. This is something people leaving long-term relationships also sometimes experience. I have met 
many a person who cut their hair after ending a long-term relationship. Faced with the possibility of losing a limb, we naturally do everything we can to save it, partly because we don't know who we would be without that limb. If we get cancer in our liver or lung, that part of the body can feel foreign to us. One woman who had part of her colon removed in the course of treatment for disease said she wanted to take it home with her and be buried with it when she died. Identification with the body shows up in all sorts of ways in our culture and in our lives. We all know the tropes of fiction that put a scar, a limp, an illness or other conventionally unattractive elements in the physical appearance of evil characters, while good characters often get depicted as somehow outwardly hale, healthy, and conventionally attractive. As we age, we try to hold on to our youthful appearance, and we may even seek relationships with people much younger than we are. That one, too, shows the mercurial nature of our identification process because we may identify with a mental feeling that doesn't go with our physical appearance, and we may thereby disidentify with the aging body. We play a constantly shifting game of identification with each move in the game determined by what the ego thinks will make it feel better. And we, we know what that is like because a lot of people, especially if you've met an older person who says how young they feel inside, or if you're a person aging and you, you feel somehow young, but we're not necessarily in touch with that primordial part of us that never ages, that ever youthful aspect of Sophia, but rather we're identifying with something mental. If we have a muscular body or a conventionally attractive body, we may find it more enticing to identify with our embodiment. Until, that is, maybe a significant injury, illness, or aging make that identification painful. And when we don't fit into the conventions of attractiveness in our culture, we may use that same identification with the body to revile ourselves. Alternatively, we may get more interested in our body precisely because it doesn't conform to conventional standards, but we may thereby prolong our confusion about what we truly are in a body that we cannot keep, a body that will eventually fail partially or eventually, of course, completely it will fail. And that's a most significant issue. We will die. When we confront that basic existential fact, we may discover all manner of strange questions and feelings about the body. When it comes to embodiment, we may want to keep in mind the many spiritual traditions that try to help us let go of this identification with the body. These traditions simply don't want us to think that if we lose a limb, for instance, 
we somehow lost part of our true selves or in any way became diminished. We might notice an irony here when we consider the religious aspect of embodiment. Many people interested in embodiment might see themselves as standing in contrast to one or more religious tradition that seems to deny the body in some way. But that supposed denial often happened in cultures that lacked the capacity or the inclination to imagine human beings free from the body in the first place. Now that might seem initially confusing. Let's put that in the form of two contrasting examples. We can suggest that the Christian traditions need the idea of resurrection precisely because certain currents in Mediterranean and European culture cannot seem to imagine us without a body. If your culture can't seem to imagine you without a body, you've got to have it resurrected. On the other hand, Buddhist traditions don't need resurrection because they can imagine a sort of stem consciousness or mind stream that can be free of a body and can then become incarnated in every form of embodiment we can imagine, from ants and apple trees to ghosts and goddesses. That means at least some aspect of the quest to recover embodiment remains in reactive relationship with a tradition that has a hard time letting go of the body. Do you see the irony there? In part, it has to do with this identification and also with attachment to the body. I mean, isn't it funny? We're so attached, we think that Christianity somehow reviles the body, but we, we have to bury all the bodies because we're so attached to them. Now, once we see this, we can also sense how a healthy kind of non-attachment to the body doesn't need to mean a revulsion toward or reviling of the body in some radical, crazy, denialist sense, but that it simply aims at helping us stop the process of attachment and identification that goes together with our manifold practices of embodying our own suffering. We don't always register how we embody our suffering. Of course, anyone who has worked with trauma has seen some of how this works. And they've seen that we accomplish it by means of unconscious processes. As one example, if someone appears to have experienced trauma that now exists only in implicit memory, we may not identify that trauma as anything other than suffering. And the goal becomes ameliorating or eliminating that source of suffering. The wisdom traditions teach us instead to diagnose suffering itself as a need for insight, which would lead to the dissolution of the whole problem of suffering, the whole thing altogether. 
The practices change us. The change makes space for an insight that dissolves the whole problem of suffering. So then you don't have to go in and ameliorate it for this particular traumatic or whatever you want to label the experience. The wisdom traditions want to help us see how we can transcend trauma altogether. We relate our identity and embodiment to stress, strain, and trauma, feeling there is something deeply wrong with us or that we've lost our wholeness and basic goodness, all related to identification. But these experiences, the traumatic ones, are not essential to our true nature. And thus we could say the identification causes our suffering rather than the painful or traumatizing events. It's not the event. It's the identification process. These traditions often teach us that what we truly are will continue after this particular body dies. And that would make it quite important to recognize we are not our bodies. We should also remember we are not our minds, at least not the mind we habitually experience. But identification lures us, seduces us into an attachment to the body and the mind, rather than a reverential and open-minded enjoyment of our relative embodiment. Because of our sometimes intense and unconscious identification with the body, various traditions have come up with some rather strong medicines in some cases to help us become free from that identification and attachment. Though we can admit, sometimes the medicine's pretty strong. But it's not really there for any other reason but that you aren't your body to begin with. So these traditions have sometimes felt that it was really okay to apply a strong medicine to help you free yourself from that mistake. Another aspect of this first error involves the spiritual materialism of turning embodiment or somatic work into a new problem to solve or a new shortcut to the sacred. We may not see this happening, but we can get drawn into a whole somatic project. It gives us lots to do, and this doing goes together with shifting patterns of identification. We start to identify as the embodied person engaged in the somatic practices, which are the shortcut to the sacred. We start to identify as a somatic practitioner, whatever it might be. Working with embodiment or somatic practices does not give us some automatic access to liberating insights into our true nature, but it can feel that way since it gives us so many insights into certain aspects of our relative existence and gives us so much to do. All the new doings come with new possibilities for insights, but often the insights are into the doings. 
not into our true nature, just an insight into the doing. We might walk right past our true nature. Embodiment practices come with no easy solutions for the basic problems of human ignorance. Not as typically practiced, and I say this again, as a holistic embodiment professional, I spent three years of training just with a kind of mind-body, you could say somatically oriented practice. That's in addition to two master's degrees and a PhD. Just focusing on the body, and of course all the time spent in meditation and qigong. Sitting in meditation is very, very confrontational in terms of our embodiment. You will deal with your body if you spend enough time in meditation. I'm not trying to laud my credentialing here. I'm saying that I I don't make these discernments or offer these discernments on the basis of some mere intellectual gesture. I've seen it firsthand. And you can see it in people kind of pronouncing, professing their somatic solutions. We just have to recognize that we're in it here. And we should be drawing from the wisdom traditions, not trying to reinvent the wheel. And many of these traditions see ignorance as a problem of actively misknowing what we are. And that doesn't change whether we actively misknow ourselves as a body, as a mind, or both. And this process of active misknowing involves conscious and unconscious processes including unconscious processes of identification that can prove stubbornly resistant to philosophical therapy. And so that resistance has contributed to the development of those strong medicines we were talking about. In our time, we've come to see some of those medicines as too strong. But we should understand their intention and context and think about their proper use and refinement. Not only does it help to remember that most of us don't, on reflection, want to identify with the body in any narrow sense. I mean, if you think about it, you don't really want to do that. But we must keep in mind that this identification process has powerful unconscious aspects which we cannot control, but which we can eventually liberate. It may also help to keep in mind that many of the wisdom traditions have had to develop their medicines in the context of dealing with large numbers of young, usually male, adherents with little understanding about how to regulate and work with their sexual energy. In such ecologies, it can make a lot of sense to offer concupiscent juveniles an array of medicines that liberate them from this energy by reminding them, for instance, that bodies decay and that in general bodies have cosmically comic aspects that can make them seem as much sexually unappealing as sexually appealing. When our body brims with erotic energy and at the same time we long to stabilize our mind and see the true nature of reality, we might find medicine that evokes the fuller picture of embodiment a welcome balm, even if it works for some people by means of evoking revulsion. 
That revulsion doesn't lessen the sacredness of reality even the tiniest bit, including the sacredness of our embodiment. Now, this doesn't mean we have to rely on these kinds of medicines. And if you're you're not familiar with some of these, it would be that if you are a celibate monk... Now, these traditions don't all enforce celibacy. So there are, for instance, in, in the Buddhist traditions, you have people who are allowed to be married and it's all good and you can wake up in your everyday life. There are even kind of quasi-monastic traditions, not really monastic, right, but they're just non-celibate paths, many non-celibate paths. Even Orthodox Christianity, if a priest marries before they become a priest, they can, they can be married and they can have children. And in the Orthodox Christian tradition, you can have sex without getting pregnant. You don't, you don't have to exclusively. That's not the only reason for the act. We're allowed to enjoy the body in these teachings, in this branch. And so there are just a range of things, but it is true that in, for a, a young person who has decided, well, I'm going to follow the celibate path, it could be very difficult. So a meditation on corpses can be very useful. A meditation on the blood and pus and so on contained in a body, imagining the food being digested and sitting in a place where there are corpses degrading, all these sorts of things can help you see the full picture of embodiment. And granted, then, that might make you feel some revulsion. But that, again, it's not to take away from the sacredness. It's to help to liberate those energies that get stuck and fixated and identify. And we do not have to rely only on these kinds of medicines. We can develop better ones. But that's going to require cultural maturity. We haven't yet mastered the regulation and the healthy, creative expression of our psychophysical energies or liberated ourselves from the identification with the body that makes us attached to both these energies and the bodies they get directed toward. In the dominant culture, we have a long way to go to liberate all the energies of life and enter into a truly ethical and inspired eco-sensual awareness. Until we do a better job with all these things, we should at least make sure that we don't forget this deep, unconscious identification and attachment. So that's the first error. Forgetting that we it doesn't matter what we think about this culture. It doesn't matter if we think that this culture has been anti-body, anti-woman, anti-earth. That it's filled with abstractions and so on and so on. We can say whatever we want. doesn't matter. Everybody in this culture has some level of identification with and attachment to their body. It's already there. Because we're so thoroughly embodied. So it's a weird paradox that we live in a mirage of distance between us and reality. You, we can't step out of reality, and yet, and yet, we, we do live in that mirage of distance. And so that's why the somatic practices make a difference. 
But if we engage in them without addressing that underlying identification and attachment, we won't really get the healing we need. If we keep both things going, we really allow love wisdom, the practice of philosophy, to come into the body. With that sense of wisdom about identification and attachment and liberating it, then we create something much more empowering for ourselves and the world. So that's our first error. We'll move on to the second one in another contemplation. If you happen to have any stories about embodiment, about attachment, in particular this first error, if you have any thoughts, reflections, questions, please send them in through dangerouswisdom.org. Maybe we'll bring them in in this series. You never know. Maybe some future contemplation. Maybe some dialogue with a somatic practitioner or someone interested in embodiment. Maybe we'll look for some people if you have suggestions for people. That's another reason to contact. Send it in through dangerouswisdom.org. In the meantime, and until next time, this is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, reminding you that your body and the body of the world are not two things. Your soul and the soul of the world are not two things. So take good care of them.